Welcome to 360 Conversations. This is a podcast featuring powerful conversations with business and well-being thought leaders, experts, and founders. We will be digging deep while sharing experience, insights, and tips for busy Generation X women seeking ways to strip back, simplify, live intentionally, and create space for everyday joy. I'm your host, Tamu Thomas, founder of The 360 Brand. I'm a life coach, speaker, writer, and podcaster too. I am passionate. In fact, I believe that it is my divine assignment to help Generation X women connect with their inner leader, the leader that resides in their emotions, buried by logic and the desire to be good. Logic and being good according to someone else's standards is okay for surviving, but round here, we are in the business of thriving. I use my background in social work, life coach training, and my superpower of loving kindness to help women connect to who they really are so they can expand into themselves fully embrace their leadership qualities and relinquish the chaos that exists within the duality of who we are and who we think we should be. My intention for this podcast is to plant seeds and create aha moments that bring you closer to your centre so that you can start to embrace your 360 degrees wholeheartedly. Hello, before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to inform you about something really special I have coming up. From the 7th to the 10th of February 2020, I will be hosting my first Heartspace Weekend Retreat, Luxury Weekend Retreat at Bibbery Farm Barns in the Cotswolds. This retreat is designed to help women on a cellular level. This is a weekend for women that are ready to thrive. It is a combination of bodywork, somatic movement, nourishing food, deep coaching, and lots of rest. This retreat has been designed for clever clogs and recovering know-it-alls, the kind of people that know what to do but are not implementing. This retreat is designed to help you find the answers that will enable you to leave the retreat, implement, integrate, and start to live a life that turns you on. There's a link in my show notes for you to read all about it. If you have any questions, if you want to discuss any payment options, whatever, there is also a link for you to book some time with me so that we can have a chat about it. Okay, now for today's show. This is episode 76 and I'm joined by Zoe Blasky, founder of Motherkind. Motherkind is a self-empowerment platform for modern mums. Zoe has a number one podcast. She is also a coach. And to sum up what she does, she specializes in conscious parenting. We talk about freedom from perfection. We talk about people pleasing. We talk about letting go of trying to control the inherently uncontrollable. 
Zoe speaks candidly about her childhood experience and how her parents' unconscious parenting led her to a path where essentially she wasn't meeting her needs. We talk about the power of conscious parenting and how it could literally change the world. I really gained from this episode and I'm sure you will too. Zoe shares lots of powerful resources all of which are linked in the show notes, and also shares information about her Freedom From Perfectionism course, which is live and available for you to invest in right now. There are lots of insights and pearls of wisdom in this episode, so I would highly recommend having your journal out to make notes as you go along, and also to check in with how you're feeling. Yeah, Zoe, thank you very much for your time, and uh, guys, enjoy the episode. Hello, wonderful people. How are you? I hope you are doing well. And if you're not, take a moment, take some deep breaths, fill your belly with air, allow your lungs to expand and exhale for twice the length of time you inhaled for and just have a quick check in with yourself. Because today, my friends, well, actually, first, thank you for joining me again. Um, it's lovely to have you here. Today, I have a very special treat. I am joined by Zoe Blasky, aka Motherkind, and we are going to have um, a wonderful, probably very deep connection. No, not connection. We've got that already. Conversation on self-connection, boundaries and joyful motherhood. Now, before I ask Zoe to say, hey, how are you doing? And tell us a bit about herself and what she does. I just wanted to let you know that I invited Zoe onto this podcast. You know, I've, I've had my eye on her for a while. I'm a fan of her Motherkind podcast. I um, try not to be a rampant consumer on social media, but Zoe makes me a rampant consumer. I think I've saved so many of her Instagram posts. It's unreal. Um, And of all the things, I was trying to think, what is it about Zoe that um, makes her attractive to me? Make of that what you will. And when I looked at everything I see that she does and the way I respond to her content and to the subject matters that are covered in her Motherkind podcast, I came to the conclusion that it's boundaries. This girl, this woman, I believe is the mother of boundaries. Um, And I see that as an issue that comes up time and time again, whether it's in my coaching practice, whether it's in what I'm seeing going around, um, whether it's online or in real life. And I thought it would be really helpful for us to have a real conversation about boundaries. So without further ado, I welcome Zoe to 360 Conversations. Um, Hey Zoe, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Well, I'm 38 weeks pregnant, so I'm feeling a bit tired. (laughs) Yeah, so we're going to be quick, guys, because we've got no time for like virtual towels and hot water. Um, (laughs) uh, And and this is your second, right? Yep. 
so I, so I hear that things can just whoosh really quickly. Hopefully, um, I had a I had a very long first labour, so I'm hoping that it's going to be a bit quicker this time. Okay, fingers crossed, but not legs. Let's yeah. let, let's start. <laughs> so Zoe, for those of my listeners that haven't had the opportunity connect to connect with you, please could you share a bit about yourself, um, what you do, and then what yeah. led you to Motherkind. Yeah, sure. So I am a coach. I'm also founder of Motherkind, which is a self-empowerment platform for modern mothers. So I uh, have a podcast, as you've you've very kindly already shared about. I do lots of speaking, writing. I work with brands. And really, I'm trying to, you know, my my mission and my passion is about supporting modern mothers to find a a different way. you know, I think we live in really unique times. No generation before us has lived in the times that we live in today with the speed of our world and technology and social media. And what I see is many of us are just replaying out um, our own blueprint from our own childhoods and our own mothers, and it's not working. We have an epidemic of stressed, anxious, overwhelmed mothers, guilty mothers, Mothers trying to do it all. You know, a lot of us have to work more than ever before now because of the cost of living. Mm -hmm. Many of us are on our own. Many of us are um, living miles away from family, often on urban streets where we don't know anyone. So I think we need a new set of tools. And that's what Motherkind is about, really. And as you said, boundaries are a huge part of one of those tools that we need. Mm-hmm. Gosh, there, were, there was so much um, in there. And one of the things that struck me the most in what, well, two things, modern motherhood and um, guilt in motherhood. Please, could you explain, um, I know that you touched on us living miles away from family and, and having huge responsibility, um, etc. What are some of the key features that distinguish modern motherhood from motherhood of times gone by yeah so I think I think one of the the really key things is community Mm so it's actually only in relative recent history like 50 years or so where we would have been raising our children in communities and if you look back even further than that so you go back maybe 200 years or 300 years it was a totally different way Mm. that we were raising our children we were raising our children with our sisters and our mothers around us other women Um, there would be wise elders around we would be sharing the load mothers were taught um, and treated with with reverence when they were pregnant and after they'd given birth and this still happens in a lot of cultures um, today but but not in western cultures so much Mm -hmm. And we find ourselves today in a totally different environment. And yet our needs as mothers and the needs of our children and the the physiology of our children and the the, the relentless nature of motherhood hasn't changed. Mm -hmm. But we are trying to do it. Many of us, as I said, working full time, many of us with little support, many of us with little money, and many of us replaying out those old patterns um, of behavior that we saw Mm -hmm. our mothers engaging in that don't that don't work anymore so yeah I think we're in a really unique time and I often say I wonder if in 50 years or 100 years time we'll look back at this moment and think that it was a big experiment um, that that went wrong in terms Mm. of the way that our society 
currently is set up to support mothers, which which is not good enough. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, and I, as you were talking, I wondered whether or not um, this uh, new and I feel to a degree all-encompassing wave of guilty motherhood um, is influenced by the rapid change the rapid change to the way we live and the way the way we live the way we function the way we relate to each other and the fact that our expectations of motherhood haven't evolved with the way that we have yes i mean i would i would absolutely agree with that so you know if you think a lot of guilt comes from perfectionism and i can i can talk to that a lot a lot of guilt comes from working mm-hmm. so it would have been you know and again not too distant history that a grandparent would have had the child while you were out working that's that's how it would have been or maybe your sister or maybe your aunt or maybe you know a, a, a neighbor someone would have would have looked after that child and that would have been the way that it the way that it was and there mm-hmm. would have been very little guilt um as I understand it you know having read some amazing books looking back at the history of motherhood um, as I as I would understand it, there would have been very little guilt attached to that. Now we're living in a society where often we are dropping our children off at nurseries at 7 a.m. and picking them up at 7 p.m. Um, or maybe we have nannies or maybe we can't work and we might mm-hmm. feel guilty about that because we're at, we're at home all day and we might feel like we're not contributing to um, our household. So I think absolutely we have this epidemic of guilt. But most of the guilt comes from the pressure that we put on ourselves mm-hmm. and a lot of that pressure is is based on um no fact really a lot of it is based on um how we think we should be as mothers and then we're yeah. not living up to that standard so I actually sometimes talk about you know I think the difference between guilt and shame is very very interesting mm-hmm. we talk about mother's guilt I actually think we mean mother's shame um Guilt is where we feel like we've done something that doesn't align with our values. And sometimes that's true, right? So if, if we're screaming and shouting at our children and yet a value of ours is communication or kindness, we might feel a bit guilty about that. And that's a good thing because that mm-hmm. is going to help us readdress our behavior. Whereas when we feel like I'm a bad mum, that's shame. So shame is knowing that thinking that I am bad and guilt is thinking I did something bad. Mm -hmm. So we talk about this epidemic of motherhood guilt. I actually think we have an epidemic of motherhood shame, of mothers feeling like they aren't good enough. And this idea of not feeling good enough um, is often perpetuated in our society by, you know, social media absolutely doesn't help. Mm -hmm. Um, The pressure that we put on ourselves to get it all right whatever on earth that means mm-hmm. um so I'm on this you know I often talk about the good enough mother mm-hmm. and just being good enough and actually mm-hmm. that is the most important thing to model to our children because if we're trying to model I beat myself up every time I fall short of this perceived expectation I have of myself we're teaching them we are teaching them that they have to be perfect to be lovable too we don't, we don't want to teach them that. We want to teach them that we can go through life just being ourselves, trying our best, and that we love ourselves anyway. So there's like a double edge, you know. With mothers, we're always thinking about, I'm always thinking about teaching, how does it feel to you and your healing and how your behavior, but also think about what you're modeling. 
what are you modeling? What are you, oh, what's gosh. the message that you're really giving to your children when you are beating yourself up for not getting it right or feeling like you're not good enough? Zoe, that is huge. And I'm reflecting on my motherhood. So when I first um, had my daughter, um, I asked, this was in 2007, I returned to work in 2008, and I asked my, um, the head of my department if it would be possible for me to reduce my hours to part-time. Um, her response was, what do you want to go part-time for? There's no room for part-time um, in social work and um, don't tell me you're going to be one of those mothers and at that time there were no conversations that I was aware of about equity in the workplace about flexible working etc it didn't exist definitely not in social care which is quite ironic because it was children and family social care and uh, fortunately the boss I had at the time said you've got so much annual leave for your first three months back, you can work three days a week, taking two days a week and you'll leave if that would be helpful. And it was really, really helpful. Now, there was a day I was at work and a very well-meaning colleague of mine, I was saying that I'm going to go back to the head of department and ask if I can continue doing three days a week. My daughter was fine. She had the most wonderful childminder Childminder, who was so wonderful, in fact, sometimes I think, oh my goodness, one day I'm going to come and they would have moved because they literally, the childminder and her husband, it was evident, they literally loved my daughter and my daughter loved them. And she was a very sensitive child. So I didn't have any worries. It was around the corner. Um, I'm fortunate I have family very close by. So um, pickups and drop offs were no. Um, issue if I wasn't able to get there but I just didn't feel emotionally ready to be so separated from my daughter and my very very well-meaning colleague said um, you must never show them that you're weak you must never let them know that they're co that you're not coping you must never let them know your personal business now she was also a slightly older Caribbean woman so I know that there are cultural um, issues um, in there so me being who I was at that time, I didn't realize, I wasn't conscious of it, but my um, tendency until relatively recently was to not process what was said or experienced in a um, conscious way. I would internalize it and subconsciously make it my fault. So as you talked about shame as opposed to guilt, what I realize is that I... Um, I made my my processing or not processing left me with shame without processing. And I just thought it was about me. And then I got a job that was further away from home, um, significantly more money, a senior role um, within a social work team. Um, and it meant that I, my daughter was in nursery by then. I had to drop her off a bit earlier and I was picking her up a little bit later and she struggled with the transition to nursery. I would come and pick her up and her face was literally in the window waiting for me to come and pick her up. And um, I had a really, really lovely boss. Um, and because I was filled with the shame, I was really badly trying to keep it together. And one day we were having a supervision and she asked me how I was and the most, oh, I feel a bit funny saying it now, the most silent tears cascaded down my face 
And she was like, what's wrong? And I said, I feel like I'm making my child work full time because I have to. And, um, sorry. She was like, you must never, ever do that. Okay, Zoe. (laughs) That's a nervous laugh because I'm feeling very emotional right now. Um, She said, you must never, ever do that. Um, And she asked me what would work for me and my daughter. And we negotiated that I would start work later, three days a week. And because my mum picked up my daughter twice a week, I could stay at work later twice a week. And those days coincided with days that social workers hate staying late, which is a Monday or Friday, because things would always kick off on those days. And from that day forward, every single job interview I went to, I said that I could not start work before 9.30. However, I could contribute to the team by working later on a Monday and Friday. And there's not one job that I went for and didn't get on that basis. That was a bit of a moment. Um, (laughs) So that that was literally um, somebody providing me with space, not necessarily to work out that I was operating on shame, but for me to tune in with the fact that um, I'm a human being. And if I state my needs, they will either be met or not. And then I can make a choice. Yeah. And what you did when you went for subsequent interviews is an example of boundaries. Yeah. Like this is going to work for me. This isn't going to work for me. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, so many mothers that I see when they try to set those boundaries, particularly in a work context, don't get the same positive reception. Um, always, not that's not always the case, but mm-hmm. often the case. And, and often your esteem would have been high enough to state your needs um, at the point of interview. A, a, yeah. lot of, a lot of mothers do not feel that way. A lot of mothers yeah. will feel like they will be um, afraid to set those boundaries not all but a lot would be afraid to set those boundaries at point of interview often because they're desperate for the the job they might need the money or they mm-hmm. might they might really want the promotion so they will try and give their power away mm-hmm. um and not set those boundaries with their prospective employer and therefore when they're in the job or in that scenario it can be incredibly challenging because mm. then your employment is based on people pleasing so then you're living to please your employer rather than focus on doing a brilliant job or a good enough job. But well, I think we need to be more than good enough at, uh, in, in our, our jobs, but meeting the requirements of our jobs and adding value. Yeah. Um, so bearing all of that in mind, or maybe not bearing all of that in mind, what is the most common issue you see in the women you work with? Like I know people present differently, but quite often there's a common thread yeah, I think everyone that I work with has unique challenges because we are all unique in mm-hmm. our setups. But I think, you know, to really generalize, what I see most often is people playing out childhood patterns, patterns that they they set up in their childhoods um, for various reasons, playing those out with with no awareness. Um, so that's a lot of what I do is I help people become aware of what those patterns are that they might mm-hmm. be doing. It might be a lack of boundaries. It might be perfectionism. Um, often it might be, as we have talking about shame, it might be drinking sometimes. It might be compulsive avoidance of feelings. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it may be codependency. It may be staying in friendships that no longer serve. I mean, it could the, the flavor of it could could be a million different things. But but often what I see is people having little awareness of what those patterns are and why they're doing them. So I I believe that as coaches, therapists, counsellors, etc., we can only take our clients as deep as we have been. Could you share with us, as much as you're comfortable, some of the realisations you had about your um, about childhood, about our childhoods playing out in our behaviour as adults in your own life? Yeah, sure. So I grew up um, in a very privileged family. We were um, white, middle class, you know, you're winning the lottery in, mm-hmm. in some extent. Um, we had a very nice house. We lived in a very nice neighbourhood. My dad had a very good job. So on the outside, the externals, um, things were good. The experience that I had within my family was that there was an lo- awful lot, and I've traced it back seven generations, an wow. awful lot of unresolved pain and trauma. Awful lot on both sides. So addiction, suicide attempts, some suicides, um, dysfunction, divorce, bankruptcy, lots and lots of pain. Lots and lots of pain being played out through the generations. And of course, I didn't know any of this growing up. But what that meant was that I had a really, really loving mum and dad who did everything for us as best they could, right? But they had done no inner work. They didn't know that they were playing out a lot of these traumas and pains. So my mum and dad were both pretty emotionally unavailable. They were very physically present, Mm -hmm. but they didn't know how to connect to their own feelings, So they didn't know how to connect to mine. So that did a couple of things. Like one of the, I mean, many, many, many things. One of of the things it did was, um, as a child, I always had a sense that something wasn't right. So everything was swept under the carpet. And a Mm -hmm. few times I would sort of ask, are you okay, mum? And she'd say, yes, darling, I'm absolutely fine. Everything's fantastic. So what that did was I learned to disconnect from my intuition. So I thought, well, my intuition is telling me that my mum and dad look pretty unhappy. Um, but what I'm seeing is the opposite, is this, is this act. What I'm seeing isn't matching. And when I'm asking, I'm being told everything's fine. So I must be wrong. Mm-hmm. That was one of the first big beliefs that I got was that I am wrong. I can't trust myself. And that got me into a lot of trouble as I got into relationships because my intuition would say, this guy isn't right. And I would override that. Mm-hmm. No, 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 look at him. He's great. He's got a great job. He's really good looking. He's got a nice family. It's all good. And I would stay in these pretty unhappy, toxic relationships way too long. So that was, that was one of the things. I also, my mum was a perfectionist. So one of the ways that she handled her pain and dysfunction was to make everything look great on the outside. Um, so I picked up that behavior. So what that meant for me as I came into my adult life was that I pushed myself to the point of burnout. I really didn't feel that I had any esteem or worth unless I was achieving something. So I would have to be the best 
at something or else I wouldn't really want to engage in it. And that led to that led to burnout for sure quite mm-hmm. early on, um, like at uni. Um, I also had no idea how to connect to my feelings because when I would cry, my mum would say to me very lovingly, you've got nothing to cry about, darling. Come on, let's go and have some, let's go and watch some TV. Mm-hmm. Okay, and, I, and parents <clears throat> do that. If, if we haven't been taught how to hold someone's feelings, that's what parents do. Mm-hmm. But what that meant is that I never learned about feelings. I never learned about how to feel a feeling. So as my feelings were coming up, which they do, because I'm a human, we are, mm-hmm. you know, we're going to have feelings. I didn't know what to do with them. So I decided the best strategy would be to try to numb them. So I did that with overworking. I did that with drinking. I did that with dating. I did that with shopping. I did it with TV, basically anything. Yeah. I couldn't sit with a feeling because I thought it would kill me. I didn't know what to do with it. And I was having lots of big feelings because of all the confusion that I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was, that was one sort of big, big coping tool was that I, I never was able to sit with myself. Mm -hmm. I also became a workaholic, um, in my twenties, which was another very effective, um, avoidance strategy because you get praised for that in our society. I was doing Mm -hmm. really, really, really well. So I always say, you know, my outsides presented totally differently than my insides so my insides look my outsides looked really good okay I had a really prestigious job I always looked put together I had an amazing group of friends I was very social I always had a good looking boyfriend on the inside I was dying dying I felt Mm. lost insecure disconnected from myself didn't know who I was um and then we had I'm deeply grateful for this because we had a huge family um, crisis one year. um, And I can't share all the details because I have some boundaries around them that my parents Mm -hmm. want me to respect. But Mm -hmm. we we had a huge, huge, huge crisis, which involved, you know, my mum, my dad and my brother all all going through very serious and significant things. Um, And I was like the last woman standing, still Mm -hmm. acting out on these behaviours of perfectionism and still working hard and drinking and... But luckily, I had a breakdown. And I say luckily because that was enabled me, that enabled me to hit a rock bottom, which Mm -hmm. enabled me to think I've got to do something differently. Mm -hmm. I cannot live like this. I cannot live like this. I I remember thinking this can't be what life feels like. It's low level um, anxiety, misery, depression. You know, I'd have suicidal thoughts. I just... I just thought this can't be it can't be it so I was so lucky so I had this breakdown I was 23 hold on pause did you hear that Zoe was 23 <laughs> my beautiful breakdown came at like 39 <laughs> I could have saved so much time by breaking down earlier yeah I'm so lucky I'm so lucky I often say it I am so 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 lucky mm-hmm. but, but I'm lucky that I had the breakdown I what I could have done is I could have gone and got antidepressants and carried on as I was. Yeah. I didn't do that. What I did was I sought help. And I was very lucky because I found myself in a 12-step recovery fellowship called mm-hmm. Al-Anon, which is for family of friends of people with dysfunctional families. Um, and that saved me. 
And from there, I then started to really work on my healing. I had some amazing therapists, somatic therapy. I got into Kundalini yoga. I got into tapping. I got into inner child work. I mean, basically uh, meditation, all of it. I just, yeah. I just loved it because I was starting to feel for the first time in my life that I could enjoy my life. Started to feel for the first time that I could be happy, mm-hmm. that I could actually live a life that felt fulfilling to me as opposed mm-hmm. to this horrific life that I was living where I was just going to this job I hated. I was hanging out with people that I didn't feel connected to. I was just ticking boxes. Yeah. Um, so I embraced it and I'm so happy that I did because what it meant was that when the time came for me to get married and start a family, I made really different choices than I would have done. Mm-hmm. You know, had I had I stayed on that pain of, of just replaying out all of this trauma. Um, so yeah, so today I'm like a recovering perfectionist. <laughs> I'm a recovering people pleaser. I am recovering from not feeling good enough. I'm recovering from giving all my life, my power away. I'm recovering from putting the outsides over the insides. And that is a constant daily challenge for me. Mm-hmm. Um, thinking first about how it feels and how it looks um yeah so I'm recovering from a lot of things mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's beautiful and it's a it's a daily journey and I'm I'm exceptionally grateful for it and may I point out um to the people that are listening that there is um there is a notion sometimes or sometimes we prevent ourselves from moving forward from growing because we have this notion that we um need to recover first and then once I've done this then I will be able to do whatever but this is a very clear example of uh recovery and I know I'm not I'm not saying that um Zoe pressed a button and whoop-de-doo she was where she needed to be but it it goes to show that when you are bold enough brave enough loving enough to actually dig deep enough you can recover and grow simultaneously well recovery exclusive recovery recovery is growth I use those words interchangeably Mm -hmm. um so you know my belief is that I wasn't born this way I was born um, feeling inherently worthy mm-hmm. because of the environment and the family dynamic that I was born in I picked up loads of different coping tools they were just coping tools there's nothing yeah. wrong with them no um but so so recovery for me is recovering back that part of me that feels inherently whole and good mm-hmm. enough mm-hmm. Um, and growth is the same for me because growth is about can I put down some of those coping tools and it can feel absolutely petrifying when you first think about stopping people pleasing yeah petrifying is anyone going to like me yeah am I you know what's it what's it going to look like when I say no when I set a boundary what's it going to look like when I quit the job that I fought for for 10 years Mm -hmm. it's petrifying It Mm -hmm. it can feel like a part of you is dying yeah and in a way it is because it's that old part of you that was um, engaging in those behaviours which were helped you through childhood survive but aren't helping you today. So a part exactly. of you is dying and it can feel like that. It's really hard, this work. There's nothing yeah. easy about it. Yeah. And it. It's daily. Like if I'm, if I'm not connected to myself every single day, I'll go straight back there. 
Oh, it's so easily done. And um, I see this playing out on social media um, all the time. Um, But just uh, going back to the um, adaptations for survival, um, I, I often think about social work this is social work really like I say to people um personal development growth coaching well-being all of this stuff um when you're working with a practitioner it's like social work for people that actually want it as opposed to social work interventions for people that don't recognize or or want it and something that I refer to a lot is um the adaptations we make in childhood to survive becoming maladaptive when we are adults Um, And the dictionary definition of maladaptive is not adjusting adequately or appropriately to the environment or situation. So the survival tool of pleasing the people around you and not questioning the things that you don't quite understand or believe in or can see that you can see that the theory and the practice is different keeps you within your tribe um, of your family or your your caregivers um, and then the maladaption we, we um, become desensitized to it and it becomes an inherent part of our behavior and mal- maladaptive as adults and that prevents us from adjusting adequately into adulthood yes yes so maturity has absolutely nothing to do with age Maturity is about how willing am I to look at the type of life that I want and how I'm feeling and what am I doing that's either contributing or taking away from that. So, yeah, emotional maturity is is not linear. Mm-hmm. It, has, it has nothing to do with age. It's mm-hmm. about at what point are you willing and ready to look at this stuff. And, and most, uh, most people never get there. Mm. Um, because the pain the pain never gets big enough but I was super lucky because my pain got big enough really yeah. early on yeah um, which enabled me to look at as you said you know what are these tools which I'm really grateful for I'm really grateful for people pleasing and I'm really grateful for my perfectionism and I'm yeah. really grateful for my numbing because if I didn't have those tools I'm I may not be here they helped me at a time when I didn't have another set of tools you know mm-hmm. I only got to learn what my parents taught me and they only got to learn what their parents taught them mm-hmm. so unless you're lucky enough that you have a parent that's done the work or is in therapy or is you know you you will learn a different set of tools that wasn't that wasn't my path my path was that I had to learn them myself mm-hmm. um and that's why I'm so grateful for my breakdown because I yeah. never would I never would have learned them mm. why would I go and sit in like cold church halls you know, with a bunch of strangers talking about my feelings on a Wednesday night, unless I absolutely had to. Yeah. I just wouldn't. Um, so there's a there's something that's incredibly powerful um, around these breakthroughs, as I call them. Mm-hmm. Breakdowns, breakthroughs, you know, where we can start to look at this stuff and think, well, is that serving me? Is this people-pleasing serving me? What is it giving me and what is it costing me? Um, and most of the time, things like people pleasing, perfectionism, lack of boundaries—you know—they cost us our life because we're living. We're living based on other people's desires for us, and you hear that all the Finger time. Snaps. Don't you? 
all all the time. time, I'm not living my life. And uh, there's an amazing book called The Five Regrets of the Dying. Oh, yes. I've referred people to that in my coaching practice. Yeah. Yeah, it's very powerful. And one of them is I, the first one most people said when this woman sat with thousands of people who were about to take their last breath is they said, I wish I'd have had the courage to live a life of my terms, not others. Powerful. Zoe, you and I use um, social media. Um, I say that, you know, my social media presence is like my um, shop window. Um, And in talking about maturation not being anything to do with chronological age, I see that showing up on social media on a regular basis where it feels like I'm watching a film about people pleasing being played in a cinema. It's it's big, it's loud, it can be all-consuming for people. Um, And you recently shared a post on Instagram which said, what people think of you is none of your business. And... um, I'm sure I was all up in the comments and I was looking at some of the comments and I was also thinking about um, some things that I had shared on Instagram about asking for um, help and how that makes you feel and stuff. Um, For people that haven't reached whatever their personal rock bottom is, for people that haven't experienced the level of pain that prompts them to take action, this concept of what people think of you is none of your business. Is it, real like is it a real destination or is it a journey and why I think I don't think you ever my experience is that I don't think I will ever fully not consider what other people think of me because Mm -hmm. we are wired for human connection Mm -hmm. but when I talk about this what other people think of you is, is none of your business the reason I talk about this is because so many of us obsess worry become hyper vigilant do things that we don't want to do we say yes when we mean no we might replay conversations that we've had you know at the school gates or with a friend over and over and over again in our mind we might think that friend's not messaged me for a week what have I done Mm-hmm. And then we might find ourselves playing back over the last six months for something that we may have said that offended them. So what, what this is really about is that other people are in their own lives. You know, think about in our lives. I'm not thinking about my friends and family so much. I'm thinking about myself mm-hmm. an awful lot. Mm-hmm. So other people are going to think what they think about us. And when we get into trying to obsess and control over that, we are trying to control the inherently uncontrollable, which is what other people think. We cannot control what other people think of us. And when we try to, i.e. people-pleasing, we go crazy because you can't control it. It's uncontrollable. I have no control over what is going on in your mind. No one, no one does. So, so with this whole, it's none of your business is really powerful for me when I really got this in my heart, because I thought, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. People are going to think what they're going to think. My job is to care about what I think of myself. Mm -hmm. My job is to know who do I want to be in this world? 
What are my values? What's important to me? How do I want to show up? What do I need to preserve my energy for? Now, the more alive and empowered we become, the more people you're going to, in my experience, the, the stronger my opinions have become. Yeah. You know, the more different my choices have become. You know, I stepped off a really successful corporate career. A lot of people had a lot of views about that. Yeah. And that's none of my business. That's yeah. their stuff. That's their stuff coming up and coming to me. So this is why boundaries are so important. Because if I'd have listened to the people saying, are you crazy? You're one step away from director. You know, you're throwing away these 12 years. Had I listened, I would still be in that miserable job today. And mm-hmm. I'm not. I'm living a life that feels fantastic to me. So this is about knowing that other people are going to have an opinion on you. Okay. But actually, it's none of your business what that opinion is. Your real business is in living a life that feels aligned, that feels fulfilled, that feels joyful to you. Yeah. Not what society might expect of you, not what your parents might expect of you, not what your family might expect of you. There's an awful lot of work um, that has to go on underneath this in order to esteem, the level of esteem to think, no, I can live a life on my terms I can follow my own path I Mm -hmm. no longer need to tow this you know box ticking life Mm -hmm. that I see so many people living it's like a muscle isn't it the more you practice the stronger it becomes yeah and I often say to people start with really small things Mm -hmm. like start with um you know, like you did, although that's not a small thing, you know, start with saying what might work for you. If someone says, do you want to do a play date at three? Start, if it doesn't work for you, practice with that. Actually, yeah. that doesn't work for me. Could we do it at four? Or yeah. actually, I'm not, I'm not doing play dates at the moment because my life is really full and it's one more thing that I can't take on. But, you know, in a few months, why don't we pick up again? You know, you start with the really small things. Zoe, sorry, I know you were about to say something, but I'd just like to pick up on that because with the motherhood and guilt piece, I'm finding that there are a lot of mothers running themselves ragged on all these play dates, going to like multiple parties a day because they don't want their child to miss out. And what you said just there is really crucial and something that you said earlier on about role modelling. Whilst you may not be running around taking your child to all of these parties and in your mind you're telling yourself you're preventing your child from having all of this fun. There's also the piece about role modelling to your child within that about not taking on more than you know what your limitations are. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So if I'm, you know, if I get invited to two play dates on an afternoon and because I'm still stuck in my childhood coping tool of not wanting to seem ungrateful or not wanting to um not knowing how to set a boundary and I say yes okay let's do both and and I'm I'm really stressed about that and I'm driving across town and I'm you know I'm likely to be getting overwhelmed I'm likely to be snapping at my child I'm Mm -hmm. likely to be exhausted I'm likely to be resentful because resentment is where we haven't set a boundary Mm -hmm. so so it's not good for us. And what is the, what's the child seeing as we're doing that? Well, mm-hmm. you know, they're seeing you probably in a, in a slightly stressed out state. They're also seeing you people pleasing. So they, children don't copy what we say, right? So we can say to them until we're blue in the face, you're worthwhile, you have value, you can do whatever you want in their life, in your life. It will mean nothing. 
literally nothing if they don't see us living that. Children, children only model what they see. Um, and we, we know that to be true. And I know that to be true experientially because, of course, my mum didn't say to me, I want you to grow up to be a people-pleasing, feeling-avoiding. Yeah. You know, she, of course she didn't say any of that to me. She said all the right things to me. Yeah. But I was, but I was watching them. I was watching my parents. Mm-hmm. And that is, that is where I picked up um, my roadmap for life. Yeah. So, yeah. so, yeah, I often say if you can't, you know, do these things for yourself, do them for your children unless you mm-hmm. want them to grow up because, unfortunately, that is what happens. You know, if we don't become conscious, we just repeat it and they repeat it and they repeat it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, I know this to be true because I've traced it back myself and I know it to be true from all the research that we, we now have our hands on, which mm-hmm. is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, yeah, it's about thinking, does that work for me? Mm-hmm. Um, that has brought to mind a, a, a light-hearted version of that um, role modelling and uh, when sometimes role modelling um, conflicts with the old school parenting way of um, do as I say, not as I do. Mm. So um, uh, on Friday I went somewhere with a friend um, I was speaking somewhere and my friend came and we were talking about um, boundaries and not going where you don't want to go and I said you know ask my friend if I don't want to go I'm not going I don't go to show my face I don't go because it will look good if I'm there you know I really want to be there um, when my daughter was seven she had a party and I was trying to be quite frank really manipulative ways to get her to include a particular child on the invitation list and uh, she's obviously seen me being a person that generally doesn't go to places I don't want to be. And um, I said to her, what about so-and-so? Um, she's really good at dancing. She came to your last party and this and that and the other. And this child of mine at seven, year old, seven years old looked at me, blank in the eyes, and said, Mummy, you only want me to invite her because you're friends with her parents, but she's not my friend, so I'm not inviting her. I was halfway between gobsmacked and wanting to give her um, a high five. Um, In the end, I acknowledged that she was correct, that I wanted her to invite her friend. Um, Well, I wanted her to invite this person that she is friendly with, but not a friend, because I'm friends with her parents. That didn't make me look like any less of a parent in the eyes of my daughter. Um, It has created a relationship where she can challenge me appropriately. But it also was a bit of a, a mirror, like my child held a mirror up to me and helped me to check in with what on earth I was doing, trying to convince her to invite this child because I'm friends with the parents. Yeah. He's in 101. Well, it's a fantastic example because of how you handled it, because you were honest. So because you were, you were able to say, yeah, you're right. Now, now, had you said to her, don't be ridiculous, you had her last year, we're inviting her. Now, that's the start of someone disconnecting from their intuition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you see that with women, you know, most of the women that I work with have, have no connection to their, to their truth, to their intuition, yeah. because it was squashed in us, um, often because of fear. And it wouldn't have been your fault had you done that. It's just that you've done some work on yourself, which means mm-hmm. that you're able to go, you know what, you're right. Now, I would say if you were going to do that again, or that scenario came up again, um, I would, if it was a client, I would say, what would it look like to have a list of the people that your daughter wants to come and then maybe a list of the people that you would like to invite 
So, so you say, you know, mummy really wants so-and-so to come because I really enjoy, I really enjoy their, you know, their company. Is that Mm -hmm. okay with you? Mm -hmm. So, so it's a, it's, it's more of that honesty front and taking responsibility there's nothing Mm -hmm. wrong with wanting you know of course there's nothing wrong with wanting your friend's daughter to come Mm -hmm. but it's about it's about being clean um, and honest about that because because you know it's fantastic that your daughter could see through your manipulation (laughs) Um, it's really good it's absolutely brilliant yeah you you want that because you want her to be you want her to be 18 you know at a party and someone's trying to manipulate her to do something she doesn't want to do, she's going to say no. Yeah. Whereas had she's a 12 year old that, so we had a, a, a group of us had children around the same time. So there's a number of what we call home friends that are the same age. And she is not doing this whole thing that I've known them forever. So they have to come. If she's making a decision, it's based on who she wants and what she wants to have. And that is not in a really um, kind of, for lack of a better description, bratty way. But she's really clear about the people that energize her and the people that don't. It's not to say that these other people are a drain on her, but she knows who she's going to have an excellent time with. And that's who she wants around. She knows people that she's got common interests or interests in common with. And that's who she wants around. It doesn't mean that when we meet up, she doesn't have a lovely time with those people. But at the age of 12, she is very able to make choices about what allows her to expand rather than to contract and fit into a historical pattern yeah so you'll probably find your daughter is not going to end up in a job that sucks the life out of her that she hates because you put pressure on her that she or even subconsciously she thinks she has to live a certain way to get your approval Mm. you are likely to be raising a daughter who is knows herself who is going to go out into the world and find something that lights her up now, how many years of pain and struggle and wasted lives, going back to the Bronnie Ware thing, you know, people on their deathbed saying, I wish I'd have known to do that. Yeah. I wish I'd have done that. Yeah. You know, I, I know, you know, gosh, hundreds of mothers, women, fathers, men who, who hate their jobs. They mm-hmm. hate what they do. They hate often who they're married to. They don't mm-hmm. like their friends anymore, that we find ourselves so easily in these lives. Um, and it all starts from, you know, from what happens in childhood. It really does. And that's Absolutely. not to put that's not to put blame or shame on parents. We're all doing our best. Yeah. But it means that when we choose to do a bit of this work ourselves, the benefit is doubled because we get it and our children get it. Mm-hmm. And it also means that um you know, even if we don't do the work, our children can have the opportunity to do the work themselves. Mm-hmm. So it's not about, you know, we get this one chance. We have neuroplastic brains. But I think it's it's a really good, a really good example there that you shared of how you are enabling her to speak her truth. And mm-hmm. you're enabling her to connect with her truth and act on that. Now, most of the women I work with cannot do that because it was squashed in them. Mm-hmm which is what we do all the time. We do it all the time mm-hmm. in tiny ways. How many times do you see a child fall over? And what do most parents will say? Don't get cry. Up, get up, you're not hurt. Yeah. Get up, you're not hurt. Yeah. And I find it so fascinating. I'm like, how do you know that that child isn't hurt? 
Zoe, we forget, you know. So I remember there was a day that um, my nephew hurt his foot and he was crying and flailing around. And um, I am a very indulgent mother, auntie, godmother, whatever. And my brother was very much like, it's okay. He was consoling him, but he was consoling him to get a very quick silence. It's okay. You're fine. Look, your foot is still there. Da, 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 da. Literally the next day, I was at my brother's house. He stubbed his toe on the coffee table. This man, this six foot four, well built man was in agony. And I couldn't help myself. I could have waited, but my nephew is, is my guy. And I was like, do you remember when you were trying to hurry my nephew when he hurt his foot yesterday? Silence. Yeah, or you, or you say to him, you're not really hurt. Get up, get up, you're not really hurt. Which is, so so these, these are so seemingly insignificant things, right? They're really tiny things. But if you do that perpetually over a few years, what you're teaching your children is that their feelings aren't valid. You're teaching them that mm-hmm. um, they, they don't know their bodies. So it, when, when my little girl falls over, I say, does it hurt? Do you need to cry? And when I say to her, do you need to cry? Most of the time she goes, no. Mm -hmm. And when she does cry, I say, keep crying, keep crying. I say to her, tears are nature's way of getting pain out of our bodies. Keep crying, keep crying. Mm -hmm. So, so now that's not because I'm a perfect parent. That's because I've done loads of work on my own feelings. Yeah. But when she has feelings, it doesn't trigger me. I don't have to silent her because I'm being triggered because I didn't ever get taught how to handle my feelings. Mm-hmm. So because I know now, I let myself have all my feelings. I give myself space for my feelings. I don't numb them out. She can have hers. Yeah. Whereas I see a lot where parents can't connect to their feelings. Our children's feelings are too much for us to handle. Obviously, rightly so. Right? Because if we've never been able to handle our own, how on earth are we going to handle our children's big feelings? Mm-hmm. We're not. What we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to hush them. We're going to say, let's put the TV on, or they didn't mean it, or, oh, I'm sure they didn't mean to push you over, or, um, you know, it's nothing to worry about. School will be different tomorrow. I'm sure the teacher likes you. You know, all these platitudes to try and get them to stop having a feeling because it was too much for us. If we yeah. haven't learned to feel our own feelings, pretty impossible to allow our children to have theirs and this is where the generational stuff comes in which is where my passion is because because then when your child becomes a parent what are they going to do they're going to do the same to their Mm -hmm, child right mm -hmm. and this is where the seven generations that I've tracked back you know so much of it is about this stuff so hopefully because I've done the work on connecting with my feelings this is just one example you know, my daughter knows how to feel her feelings. She yeah. talks about feelings. So when she's a mother, if she chooses to become a mother, I would really like to think that her child would be able to feel yeah. feelings. So in that way, I've broken a cycle there. I've broken a dysfunctional cycle. So addiction is a massive problem in my family. And I know that the root cause of addiction is really about avoidance of feelings. Mm-hmm. So it may be, just maybe, that me spending, you know, I was 23 I'm 36 now you know all those years on my healing and my recovery and my daily work maybe just maybe I might have stopped a cycle of addiction in my family who knows but but I'm I'm trying Mm -hmm. you know so this is why this work is so profound absolutely and this for me 
is radical self-care. Yeah. Absolutely radical self-care. Oh gosh, now Zoe, I could literally spend the day talking to you about all of this stuff because I think it is really, really important for us to take time to go deep below the surface uh, because, you know, I've said this before, if we think about ourselves like the sea, the surface of the sea or the ocean or whatever, it's choppy, there are waves crashing all over the place. But when you get down to the seabed, it is calm and you can actually do the work that then enables you to come back to the sea surface and navigate your way through all of the crashing and whatnot that happens with the waves. But if you don't take that deep dive, you are at the mercy of the waves. You are just bouncing backwards and forwards, exhausted, but not really knowing why. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Uh, So, Zoe, um, scrap half the things that I was going to um, end with. Um, (laughs) You are very well read. You have your own magnificent podcast. Please could you share some resources that will help people that are curious about connecting with themselves um, and getting to the root of some of their behaviours? So books, podcasts, um, anything that you think may be helpful there's so many so if if you go onto my website motherkind.co I have a a freebies section and in there is a reading list um I am an avid reader I, I read about a book a week um so I've what I've done is I've compiled I think I've read about 700 I'd counted one bloody hell Zoe <laughs> yeah well, you're it, like a professor yeah, I'm sort of annoyed at myself that I don't have a PhD with the amount of reading and studying that I've done on this stuff. Um, but because I got so deep into it and I was young, you know, I didn't have kids. So I was yeah. I was reading sometimes like three books a week. I, I cannot tell you how how uh, passionate and sponge-like I became about this this healing and transformation work. So, so basically what I've done is I've condensed them all down into the best ones that I've read. So I've mm-hmm. done the hard work for you. That is on my website. So motherkind.co, mm-hmm. um, pop in your email and I will send that to you. Um, but a couple, of, a couple of books stand out on this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, meditation, we haven't talked about it, but that has been one of the... The, the greatest tools in my toolbox. So I always recommend The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle mm-hmm. um, because I think it's a profound book. I think it's a life-changing book. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another book called Adult Children of Emotionally Unavailable Parents, which is really great because most of us, I can probably say that, had emotionally unavailable parents mm. or unconscious parents. Most parents that I know had not done this work of the, of our parents' generation. Yeah. So this book is pretty much applicable to everyone. And what it does is it outlines a lot of the stuff that I was talking about, a lot of mm-hmm. the behaviours and the adaptations, as you said, that we do when we didn't have emotionally available parents and how to heal and recover from those. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of podcasts, I'm going to have to say mine because Absolutely. I think it is so fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have... Um, many of the world's best teachers, um, and I mean that, like I've had Dr. Shafali Tafari, who is, you know, Oprah calls the most profound parenting teacher of our time. She has been on. I've had Dr. Gabor Mate, who is arguably the the world's leading thinker on human and child development on. So, and there are many more like that. 
Um, another podcast. Marianne Williamson, may yeah, I Marianne add. Wilson, yes, yes. Um, you know, again, arguably the, the greatest spiritual thinker and teacher of our time. I've had her on talking about how she got her early motherhood wrong, actually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, that's, quite, that's quite profound to hear. So, yes, yeah, so my, my podcast, in terms of other podcasts, I really like um, Rich Roll. Um, because he comes from very similar background to me in terms of he talks about uh, talks about trauma, he talks about healing, he talks about uh, le- leading a fulfilling life, and he has loads of interesting guests. And in the UK, um, I really like Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a lot of similar guests to me, a lot of the same guests to me, but he comes at things from a slightly more well-being. Um, angle and I, I really appreciate that um, my other recommendation is an Instagram one um, mm-hmm. there is a lady called Dr. Nicola Perra who goes under the handle the holistic psychologist oh yeah um, and she is doing some incredible work um, brave work because what she's really trying to do is change the paradigm in these conversations around um, healing and parenthood and um how a lot of the views that we have of the world are actually, you know, the societal view is, is based in trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, so she does brave work um, and she gets a lot of criticism. Um, but, but I really would recommend that people check her out. Um, the other thing is I'm about to release a course on perfectionism. Mm-hmm. So I took, you know, the five big coping tools that I saw mothers engaging with you know people pleasing lack of boundaries perfectionism inner critic and not being kind to ourselves and I asked my community which one do you want me to do a course on first Mm -hmm. um and everyone said perfectionism so that is going to come out in a couple of weeks Mm -hmm. um it's an online course so you can either print it off or and work through it like a workbook or you can do it online Mm -hmm. it's it's 20 days so you, you do it um, over a month and there's no, no work to do on the weekends. Um, yeah. So you do something 10 minutes a day and that will move you from, really give you some insight into where your perfectionism came from and how you can start to live a life of more freedom. Because um, perfectionism, of course, takes our freedom away. Absolutely. So, so yeah, so those are some of the, the, the big things that I would point people to. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I will make sure there are links in the show notes so that you can access all of that good stuff, thought provoking stuff. It's not going to be, oh my God, this is so wonderful. I know, I know, I know. It's about being open to receive the new and deeper levels of learning. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully none of the stuff that, you know, that I talk about is things that you would see you know, you know, I don't tend to talk about the like um, high level, you yeah. know, sort of very surface level things. My my real passion is is healing and transformation, and, and yeah. as you said, for that we have to go deeper. So, yeah, that's going to bring stuff up in you, but it's also going to have to come up to heal properly. Yeah. So, yeah, um, yeah some people find my content really challenging, and I think that's a great thing. Mm-hmm. Me too. There are sometimes I share, you know, so, so something that people um, hook onto that I say is like shit is fertilizer, like the real beauty, magic, joy of our lives is in the depths of our shit. Um, and then you, you will share something that is like, I don't know, um, a journaling prompt. Oh, yeah, this is really great. And then something else, like I shared a post that said something like, um, 
You are exactly where you're meant to be. And I was calling bullshit on that statement. The amount of um, DMs I had asking me, they weren't out and out challenging me, but asking me if I had considered, have I thought about, had I done these other things? And literally one or two late questions later, these people that were asking me essentially to reconsider revealed something quite deep, very deep in some cases, that highlighted that statement had, rather than activated something, it had triggered something about how they were pacifying themselves by saying things like, you are exactly where you need to be, which I file under the same category as um, I leave it to the universe. But anyway, that's a whole uh, another conversation. <clears throat> Before you go, my last question is, what does everyday joy mean to you? Everyday joy, what does it mean to me? I think it means um, peace of mind. So I really try and live, you know, not... Uh, obviously, I have the day-to-day stresses, right? I, I'm a mom. I have a business. I'm about to give birth. I have I have my day-to-day stresses, but but generally, I I have such a trust in the unfolding of my life. I really do. Um, that, and I've really learned. I think I, because I've had this gift of this, you know, big breakdown and 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 doing all this work and seeing life in quite a different way. I think probably than than the norm. Um, it really enables me to let go a lot of the, the nitty shitty stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that gives me a real peace of mind. Not so much will rattle me these days, if I'm honest. Mm-hmm. Um, I also have a really strong meditation practice, which helps me to disconnect from those crazy thoughts that tell me I need to freak out. Mm-hmm. So I think I think a lot of my joy just comes from a peace of mind, just comes from knowing that I'm okay, I'm enough, all is well, I've got this. You know, and, th- and from there I can, you know, there's, there's little stress or drama, if I'm honest. Like, sometimes I feel funny saying that because I think there's such a, mm. such, sometimes a sense out there that it's important to share the drama that we live in or the stresses. But my, my genuine reality is that not much stresses me out these days um, because I've worked so hard on, on my healing and myself. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where my, where my everyday joy comes from is just that peace of mind. Um, and mm. and a trust and yeah just trying to enjoy it all I mean god it might end tomorrow right so hello <laughs> exactly I'm not going to be one of those people on Bronnie Ware's list that says I wish I'd lived a life for me not on based on other people's expectations that is not going to be me you know and sometimes I think that if I die tomorrow I'd be bloody happy um with with where I've got to and and with you know what I'm doing and how I am and my relationships and my family and and that's a really good place to be the door on the front of my heart literally just burst open as you said that oh (laughs) geez this I believe is what my auntie Brene Brown means when she talks about being wholehearted yes I, I think so too yes Yes, it's brave work and it's, you know, you know, you don't you don't get to I don't think you get to this place by by not being brave, as she said, being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Um, you get to this place by by yeah, being bloody brave and showing up and risking and you know, all all the hard stuff, but the, yeah. the reward on the other side is pretty massive. 
have to say. <laughs> it's pretty oh. massive. <laughs> Zoe, thank you for your time. Thank you for your candor. Um, I think that this podcast episode is going to be a really useful resource, whether you are a mother or not. So a huge, great big thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for listening to 360 Conversations. I appreciate you sharing your precious time with my guest and I. I hope you found the episode useful. I'd be so grateful if you could rate and review my podcast. Like an increasing number of our digital experiences, the algorithms rule. Your feedback will assist me reaching a wider audience and I'd really love to have more women being privy to or joining these conversations. The feedback I get following each episode is beautiful and tells me more women could benefit. As always, I'd love to keep the conversation going. You can join me by commenting on the podcast show notes on my website or via social media at Live360. I hope to engage with you soon. Podcast produced by me, Tammy Thomas. Podcast music produced by James Anderson. Take care.